This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, the academic arm of the Mount Sinai Health System in New York City, and one of America's leading research medical schools. How will advances in artificial intelligence transform medical research and medical care? And what will this mean for patients? To find out, we invite you to read a special supplement to Science Magazine, prepared by Icon Mount Sinai, in partnership with Science. Just visit our website at www.science.org and search for the Frontiers of Medical Research-Artificial Intelligence, the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. Introducing The Giant's Ladder, written by leading science marketing expert Elizabeth Schaub. Crafted for professionals at the intersection of science and commerce, The Giant's Ladder guides you through a structured approach to marketing scientific discoveries, enabling them to resonate in places that matter most, from laboratories to boardrooms to policy chambers. Get the best-selling book Kirkus describes as a helpfully practical and authoritative introduction to the marketing of scientific products at Amazon and other book retailers today. This is a science podcast for August 26, 2022. I'm Sarah Crespi. Each week, we talk about the most interesting news and research from science and the sister journals. First up this week, Deputy News Editor Eric Hand. We're going to talk about researchers chasing Arctic storms that chew up thin summer sea ice. Also this week, researcher Yuta Senzai on what's going on in the brains of mice during REM sleep. Finally, we have host Angela Saini. She has an interview from our series on the science of food and agriculture. She talks with Nicholas Sullivan about his latest book, The Blue Revolution, Hunting, Harvesting, and Farming Seafood in the Information Age. Now we have Eric Hand. He's a deputy news editor for Science. We're going to talk about an airborne campaign to study summer cyclones in the Arctic. These giant storms are known to chew up sea ice, which is more vulnerable during the warmest part of the year. The researchers are hoping to better understand the way these storms affect ice and how this ice affects storms. Hi, Eric. Hi, Sarah. So this is already kicked off, right? People are already flying planes through cyclones up there? That's right. The British component of the campaign got got its start at the end of July, and the French and the American components began at the beginning of August. Basic weather question. What's the difference between a cyclone and a hurricane? There really isn't much of a difference. They're all counterclockwise spinning storms, but the Arctic cyclones are form and are fueled very differently from tropical storms. Mm-hmm. So what, what are some of those differences? In the Arctic, they last a lot longer. They're not as strong, but they can be much bigger. A famous one in 2012 spanned the entire Arctic Ocean. But they also are sparked a little differently. Hurricanes and and tropical storms derive their fuel from the energy and, and water vapor rising from a hot ocean. In the Arctic, these storms form when you get little, little kinks, little spin ups at low levels in the atmosphere and high levels in the atmosphere. And when those spin-ups merge or unite, they kick off these cyclones. We're talking about summer storms, cyclones affecting summer ice. Are there cyclones in the winter too? Yeah, they're year-round. The wintertime storms can actually be quite strong and important too, but they're not going to have as much of an effect on the sea ice. Is it dangerous to fly through 
a cyclone? These aren't as strong as tropical storms, right? So a really strong Arctic cyclone will be about as strong as a tropical storm. So 100 kilometer hour winds would be a very strong Arctic cyclone. So these would never be as strong as hurricanes, but it would still be a pretty bumpy ride for these researchers flying through them. And why don't we know too much about the Arctic cyclones, these summer storms? I don't ever see them in the weather reports on the television or anything like that. I mean, for starters, there aren't as many people living in the Arctic. There are. And so these storms are important for those who who actually do live there in coastal communities, for fishing vessels. But yeah, we, we don't hear about them because they're not affecting all the many people that live at lower latitudes. But the other reason is we can't forecast them so well. We don't have as much data to put into the, the forecasting models from the Arctic. There, there just aren't Arctic weather stations providing that data. So tell us a little bit about this campaign that started this summer. What are they hoping to measure? Is this partially to gather data and get better models for predicting these storms? That's right. So they want to improve on the forecasting of the weather and climate models, not just for, for improving their forecast of the storms themselves, but also better forecasts of how the storms affect the sea ice, how much sea ice they destroy. These sea ice outlooks are becoming increasingly important as fishing vessels, cargo ships try to take advantage of ice-free passages in the summertime Arctic. So these storms chew up that ice, but we don't know how much it, it will chew up. We don't know how often it happens. We know that they do directly and indirectly destroy a lot of ice. They're becoming an increasing player in melting sea ice. And there's a lot of mechanisms by which they could do that. One, they could be pushing the ice to warmer waters. Two, they could just be mechanically breaking it up with their winds into smaller pieces that melt more easily. And then the third way, the storms can create waves that stir up warmer water from deeper and bring that up to melt the ice from underneath. So how will, you know, having ships flying through the storms or weather balloons nearby help us better understand the interaction with the ice? In this case, the campaign has two aircraft, one that's going to fly just above the ice, just 15 to 30 meters above the ice. And that's going to really help take measurements to gauge this interaction between the storm and the ice to understand how the, the storm stresses the ice, but also how the ice pushes back and affects the storm in different ways. A separate aircraft is going to fly much higher through the tops of the storms to learn about the clouds and how they work, which is another key part of the models, another part that the models really struggle with. Right. This is the idea that the clouds have a lot more ice in them or an unknown amount of ice in them compared to tropical clouds. Yeah, they can contain a mix of water and ice and figuring out that balance from uh, satellites in orbit is really, really difficult. I mean, so if they can fly through the clouds and gain that information directly, they can maybe tweak the models to better account for the, the way that the clouds and the storms work. And we should also mention the roughness of the ice and how that can also be having an effect on what's going on with these storms. Yeah, so for a long time, the models just treated the ice as uniformly smooth. And now more and more models are starting to put in factors that account for how, at least at the edge of the Arctic ice pack, the ice is a lot rougher. Um, you can imagine it being 
bumpier as flows stack up on each other or the gaps between the flows and the ocean. It's, it's, it's a much rougher edge. And so that creates turbulence and friction at lower levels that actually slow down the winds of the storm. Counterintuitively, they can also actually help the storm, that that friction can also help the storm persist longer, which is something else you see with a lot of Arctic storms. They just keep uh, circling around the Arctic Ocean for weeks on end. Has climate change increased the intensity or frequency of these summer cyclones up in the Arctic? There's been no sign of any change with climate change in the last couple decades. So a few studies have, have looked at that and the cyclones, yeah, there's, there's no change in intensity or frequency. The reason why they think, however, that they're responsible for destroying more ice is because climate change is making the ice more vulnerable. So as global warming increases temperatures in the Arctic, the summertime ice flows are getting thinner and thinner. And so when a cyclone does come along, it's much more likely to uh, destroy it. What will happen to these summer cyclones when we have an ice-free Arctic? That's also an open question. Initial studies haven't found a significant change in the number or strength of the Arctic storms in the far future. That may be because there's competing forces at play. So an open ocean will have more moisture and energy to fuel these storms but it will also mean there's fewer of these little spin-ups, these little kinks that spark the storms. And so that might be why the researchers so far aren't seeing a drastic change. Thanks so much, Eric. Thanks very much, sir. Eric Hand is a deputy news editor for Science. You can find a link to the story we discussed at science.org podcast. Don't miss my chat with Yuta Senzai about coordination in the brain during sleep. Researchers at Queen's University Belfast translate research into action and make sense of a rapidly changing world. They keep up with technological, societal, and economic advances and drive change through collaboration and real-world partnerships. Their research leads to critical breakthroughs in areas such as green technology, food and agricultural sustainability, peacebuilding, and healthcare. Queen's University Belfast network of international researchers has a reputation for global excellence. Over 99% of their research was assessed as world-leading or internationally excellent in REF 2021. The impact of this research is felt around the world. Visit qub.ac.uk to find out how Queen's University Belfast is bringing research to reality. When we dream, we're most likely in REM sleep, rapid eye movement sleep. These two things are linked, and we don't know why. Does the movement of our eyes reflect what's happening in our dreams? To take a step towards understanding what might be going on here, Yuta Sensei and colleagues looked at what's happening in the brains of mice when their eyes are moving and their brains are sleeping. Yuta is here to talk about it. Hi. Hi, Sarah. So do all mammals have REM sleep? Mostly, yes. REM sleep is observed across uh, many mammals and birds, and there are some reporting reptiles as well. I'm not sure we, we can call REM sleep because in some animals, there's not necessarily rapid eye movement, but the observation that there's an active phase of sleep and not active phase of sleep 
two phase of sleep is observed across uh, many animals, not only the vertebrates, but invertebrates like uh, octopus or the fruit flies and spiders. Wow. So we all have this kind of two phases of sleep, the one where our brains are kind of quiet and the ones where our brains are more active. And in mammals and people, it's the active form is REM sleep. Maybe it's not necessarily right to say quiet. There are a lot of interesting activity patterns during this not active uh, kind of phase of sleep. During REM sleep or active phase of sleep, the brain activity is uh, very similar during awake. During uh, active phase, you can see more desynchronized uh, activity in the cortex, or you can also capture from the EEG. And you can see many like a uh, brain oscillation patterns, which is similar to the you can observe during awake. But in the other phases, the patterns are much different. You can see the different kind of uh, oscillation compared to the drink REM sleep or active phase of sleep. Do we only dream during REM sleep? Not only REM sleep, but the uh, non-REM sleep dream can be observed, but uh, more vivid, vivid visual dreaming often associated with REM sleep. So in your study, you used mice to look at this question. Yes. A connection between rapid eye movement and what is happening during REM sleep. And as part of this, you took into account the mouse head position. The reason why I focus on a head position or try to decode the head direction during sleep is because in awake animals, so head movements and eye movements are tightly coupled, both in freely behaving mice and humans. The fat saccadic eye movements are coupled to the head turns in the same direction as the eye movements. What do you mean by saccadic? Is the eyes moving together quickly in the same direction? Is that right? Yeah, I want to say this uh, fast eye movements, which shift between this gaze to gaze, position point to position point. This kind of a very fast eye movements are coupled to the head direction and it moves to the same direction as a head movement and changes animals to gaze direction together. And that's for mice and for primates? It's mice and primates, yeah, including humans. So you're seeing a tight coupling of head movements and eye movements in awake animals. But when mice are asleep, they move their eyes during REM sleep, but they don't move their heads. They don't move their head, but there was a study in 2015 showing that actually you can decode those uh, internal representation of head direction. Those uh, head direction cells during REM sleep, they are coordinated in a similar way as during awake animals, coordinated in a similar way during actual navigation. So even though the head isn't moving when they're asleep, you can see the same patterns of firing in these specific cells that say their head is moving this way or their head is moving that way. Yes. When this phenomenon was discovered, it was not sure actually it's uh, this change in a decoded head direction is uh, coordinated with some navigation in a dream, or it could be uh, some just random activity. But it was not known whether it's really related to the, or coordinated to some, some other modality or some other representation in the brain. Like the eye movement that happens in REM sleep? Yes. So that's what you looked at, the coordination between, you're able to read off these head position neurons in a sleeping mouse, and then you also could look at what their eyes were doing? Yes. How did you look at their eyes? What were you doing? So we placed the miniature head-mounted cameras in front of both eyes while recording those head different cells. Was there a coordination between the head position and the eye action 
And was that coordination, you know, similar to what is seen when a mouse is awake? Yes. We also show that the, not only the coordination between the eye movement and the actual head movement, but we also observed the coordination between the eye movements and the representation of the head direction during actual navigation. So you looked at this relationship when the mice were awake and then again when they're asleep and you're seeing similar coordination in both cases. Yes. What does this imply about what's going on with the mice during REM sleep? The fact that these things are coordinated. First, it shows that the rapid eye movements is a good readout of uh, what is going on in the brain during REM sleep. But this coordination also suggests those uh, virtual head direction changes or virtual head turn or rapid eye movements may be a part of a globally coordinated representation of a perhaps virtual navigation. It kind of tells during REM sleep, this mouse brain is actually actively navigating in this virtual world of a dream. I mean, in a way, it includes partially the interpretation. If we think about our dream, we move around, run around, swim around or fly around sometimes. Moving around in a dream or some during REM sleep may be also common or be observed in, uh, in mice. Mm. Do mice dream? In a paper, we try not to say my stream because uh, <laughs> it's a uh, bit potentially dangerous. But uh, I, I do believe my stream, depending on how we define dream, but uh, I would say my dream. And so if they're in their dream, again, this is very speculative at this point, but in their dream, they're moving around, they're moving their head, they're moving their eyes. And you might be reading that from looking at the eye movement, looking at the brain patterns of the head position. Mm-hmm. But we can't know that because we don't know what the mouse is doing in its dream, even, even if it is dreaming. Yeah. So I would say this is kind of a starting point to look further into what is going on in the brain during REM sleep. This study shows that the, those rapid eye movements or this uh, internal representation of a head direction can be a good key anchor to dissect the representation or coordination across the brain in a distinct brain areas, brain system during REM sleep. And we hope using those as an anchor or using some other modality potentially to anchor, maybe we could try to understand how this navigation system or visual system or some other modalities or motor system, how they are coordinated during REM sleep. What got you into studying the brain during sleep or during dreaming? Originally, I wanted to understand uh, our perception. If you think about your own dream, we also perceive in a dream. Many studies suggest that we perceive the world, so environment, through this uh, our internal model of it. So it not only directly, but we kind of see or perceive through our internal model of the world. This sleeping brain is a great subject for studying such an internal model because it is mostly detached from the external world. By studying what's going on in a brain, especially during REM sleep, which is associated with the vivid visual dreaming. We wanted to understand where's the core mechanism perception and what could be different in awakened sleep. That's a kind of a original motivation. Thank you so much, Yuta. Thank you so much, Sarah, for this opportunity. Yuta Senzai is a postdoctoral researcher in the Department of Physiology at the University of California, San Francisco. You can find a link to the science paper we discussed at science.org slash podcast.
Stay tuned for the next in our series of books exploring the science of food and agriculture. This month, host Angela Saney talks with Nicholas Sullivan about his book, The Blue Revolution. Hello, I'm Angela Saney, science journalist, author, and the host of this audio series in which I interview the writers of books that explore the science of food and agriculture. We're now at episode four, and this month I'm joined by writer and editor Nicholas Sullivan, whose latest book out this year is The Blue Revolution, Hunting, Harvesting, and Farming Seafood in the Information Age. As he explains, more than 3 billion people get 20% of their protein from fish. It's the top traded food commodity, and it's getting more popular every decade. But large-scale commercial farming has also perilously depleted fish stocks all over the world. What's the answer? Sullivan argues that there's a transformative shift now happening towards value over volume, helped by modern technology. This means that fishing can be done more effectively and more sustainably. Nicholas, before we go into the details of those technologies, could you just start by outlining the state of fishing and seafood farming globally at the moment? We often hear that fish species are at risk of extinction. Is that true? And is it because of fishing or is is it other factors? Well, in terms of wild capture versus farming, this point, about 52% of the fish that are consumed are farmed. That's a fairly recent phenomenon. Most of the farm fish are freshwater, but the fastest growing portion are marine species. And as far as wild marine species, the UN Food and Agriculture data says that about one third of the stocks are overfished. That does not mean they are extinct. It means that they are in danger of at some point becoming extinct. And so overfishing is a part of it, but I think now climate change is becoming equally a strong factor in the health of fish, particularly the warming water, which is reducing the oxygen in the water and reducing the growth in phytoplankton, which is the bottom of the food chain. And the other big factor, of course, is illegal fishing, you know, IUU, illegal, unregulated, unreported fishing, which is say, up to 30% of the fish that are caught every year. And um, it's indiscriminate, random, long line, drift nets. So it's catching turtles and octopus and birds and all kinds of marine organisms. Right. And your book does look at fishing globally, but it focuses in on New England in the United States in particular. Can you explain why you did that and the importance of that part of the world to the fishing industry? I started out looking globally because the question I started out to answer was, where are the fish going to come from to feed the world? But it became clear that it was just a massive topic. There are so many different fisheries with different regulations that it was just too much. So I focus on New England, where I'm from, where I grew up, which is, you know, the original fishery in the United States. And it's a very well-managed fishery. So I use that as kind of a proxy for the rest of the U.S., and for other countries that have well-managed fisheries as kind of, you know, a model for other parts of the world. And can you just paint a picture of what the fishing industry is like in New England? The fishing industry in New England, well, historically, it was built on the cod, the Atlantic cod, you know, and that dates back to 1000 AD when the Basques came over from Maine and the Vikings came over into the Greenland and the Northern Maritimes. 
you know, in terms of the United States, when it was first settled in the early 1600s, the cod, you know, the Gloucester, the ancient fishing port was built on the cod. Boston was built on the cod. But now the top value landing is lobster. But the lobsters now, like a lot of fish, are moving further offshore or further north, searching for colder waters. So there's been a lot of change in fish behavior based on the warming water. Fish are going toward the poles. Big fish are probably going to get smaller because there's less oxygen. And big fish have smaller gill size relative to their volume. So the exertion required to hunt, given the lack of oxygen, means that they're going to become smaller. So there's a lot going on. And the whole ecosystem is so complex. Obviously, marine biologists have been studying this for centuries, but I think there's still so much that is unknown about how the organisms interact, how well they can and will adapt, so forth. So one of the big things in the blue economy now is just data collection, just trying to understand more about the watery deep that uh, is so vast. And can you describe some of the innovations that you've seen that have helped improve sustainability when it comes to fishing? One of them is better surveying. The scallop industry in New England is a really good example of that because it was in the mid-90s was basically most of the beds were closed. The scallops that were available were undersized juveniles. And of course, we want to leave them so they become adults and spawn. But there was a collaboration between the scientists, the regulators, and fishermen using underwater cameras and other modeling that took photographs of the bottom of the seafloor so you could see where the scallops were of size, where they were undersized. And they devised a system of kind of rotating beds, which they've kept up for the last 20 years and has made it one of the most valuable fisheries in the country, if not the world. The survey, that understanding and the collaboration between scientists, regulators, and fishermen, which historically has been very rare because fishermen go out and hunt and um, they bridle at regulations and so forth. But that was a real turning point in the industry, I think. And there's more of that happening now in terms of surveying ground fish. There are now onboard observers on boats to see what is being hauled in and thrown over. There are electronic monitors so people can see from shore what's happening on board. Of course, fishermen don't particularly like either of those systems, but they've been good for the fish. So despite the claims of overfishing, in the last 20 years, 45 stocks in the U.S. that were overfished have been rebuilt and opened up again. And there are now more ground fish than there were 25 years ago. And ground fish are the fish at the right at the bottom of the sea the bottom, the demersal, as they call them. A lot of that is just a function of policy. They went from a days at sea regulation to how many days any boat or searching for any particular species could fish to a annual catch limit. And that has really restricted the amount of fish that are being caught. And there's more attention to the bycatch. For instance, codfish, which are in decline right now, so there's very little quota. They're basically shut down for rebuilding swim with haddock, which are plentiful. So fishermen that are targeting haddock have to be careful not to catch cod because they don't have the quota for it. And that has restricted the amount of haddock that they're catching, which means that um, they're leaving a lot of good fish in the water, a lot of money in the water, but it's been good for the fish stocks. 
So can technology be used to kind of distinguish which fish in the water you are able to catch and which you can't? There's piloting going on now in terms of surveying using open nets so fish can swim through it with sensors and cameras in it and machine learning algorithms that can identify the fish, the size, and so forth. So that is just beginning and needs to be perfected. But theoretically, once that is perfected, when you're trawling, you'll be able to see what's in the trawl net before you pull it up on board to empty. So if you were catching something that you shouldn't be catching, you can just open up the net and let it go, or you can adjust. So that would be a huge change in fishing. If you could see what was in the net when it was underwater. Yeah. I mean, that's pretty remarkable. Yeah. And the innovations you describe in your book actually go in lots of different directions. So there's that on the fishing end of things. But one of the fascinating stories you also have is the use of fish skin as a bandage, which is both useful and also means the skin doesn't go to waste and more of the fish gets used. Can you tell me a bit more about that? That comes out of Iceland, which has become a global leader in this idea of utilization, 100% utilization of the fish, because most fish are, you know, the filet and the meat of the fish is 50 to 60%. The rest, the skeleton and head and bones are either tossed, used for fertilizer or pet food. But Iceland has got this initiative to use 100% and they're turning them into, you know, medicinal things, creams. And the one you mentioned is one of the most amazing things that just using cod skin, the bandage for diabetic wounds, breast reconstruction, spinal injuries. It's acellular. It doesn't compete with human cells and it's much faster restorative. And so this one codfish, you can make eight bandages out of it that sell for $500 each. That's $4,000 for, you know, skin of one codfish compared to say 20 or $30 for the fillets of the codfish. So that is remarkable and it's an extreme case, but it's an example of the possibilities of increasing the value as you increase the utilization of the fish. And of course, that reduces the fishing pressure. Yeah, that, that is remarkable. Part two of your book looks at fish farms. As you write, more than half of global fish consumption in 2018 was of farmed fish, and that's been going up. And most of that was farmed in Asia. So for you, does aquaculture of this kind represent the future of the fish industry? Yeah, it is definitely part of the future. And what I've learned, which was really amazed me, that you know a lot of people have negative impressions of farm fish. There used to be a saying, you know, friends don't let friends eat farm fish because it's the dirty practice, environmentally bad. But 70% of farm fish globally are shellfish and kelp or seaweed, which are both kind of restorative to the water. And they don't require any food. They just take nutrients from the water kelp absorb CO2. And I think in northern U.S. now, you know, New England and the mid-Atlantic coast, top value is lobster, number two is scallops, and number three is aquaculture. And that's basically shellfish and kelp. And the other thing that is happening with farm fish is land-based farming, big recirculating tanks on land. So taking the fish out of the water and putting them on land, which is a very high-tech solution using machine learning, artificial intelligence, automation to test the water, to clean it. Basically, they're both wastewater treatment plants to keep the water clean and recirculating and their life support system to keep the fish alive for two or three years to market size. 
I think the economics are a bit up in the air still. It's expensive to run these recirculating systems. And the final thing, besides the shellfish and the land base, is moving farms offshore into deeper water where there's stronger currents. So the bottom is kept clean. You can also put those farms in kind of ocean deserts so they're not competing with other fish because you're feeding them. So there's a way to be ecologically and environmentally sound about farming that was not the case 30 years ago. This is one of the big things for consumers is that, especially now, we're all so concerned about the sustainability of the food that we get. And you write that of all the seafood out there, the best to farm and to eat are shellfish, particularly oysters and mussels. Why is that? Well, it's because they don't need any food. They just get nutrients out of the water so you don't have to feed them. They're very high in protein and vitamins. And it's a very non-intrusive. There are no negative side effects, really. They clean the water and they taste good. Again, if you're talking about feeding the world, it's hard to imagine feeding the world with oysters because they're hard to open. (laughs) (laughs) Mussels are easier. You just boil them and they open themselves. But it's very healthy food, easy to grow, no negative side effects, and actually positive restorative impacts on nearshore estuaries. Well, that's good to know. I mean, earlier in this series, we were interviewing T. Colin Campbell, who is a nutritionist who is very much focused for many decades on this idea that we should be focusing on whole food, plant-based diets for a number of different reasons. What are your views on that trend now? Is it good for the oceans if we eat more vegetables? Well, for sure. Yeah. I mean, it's just like it is good for the, um, the land as well. There's less pressure to grow beef, which take up a lot of land and a lot of grain. And yeah, definitely would reduce the pressure on land-raised animals and farmed and wild capture fish. Does he see the world moving in that direction? You know, is there a trend? That's, I guess, the question is, are people going to do that? There still has to be a source of protein, you know, for people. I guess that's the big question. Where is the protein going to come from? What I also mean is that when I was reading your book, you know, a lot of it is about the people who do the fishing as well, the people who farm the fish. These are economies and industries that have built around these forms of protein. Um, So how would they be affected if the world kind of moved towards a vegan diet? I mean, if they're farmers, you can farm anything, right? So they could switch. Now, wild capture fishermen, some of them are switching to farming is they're worried about the sustainability of the wild fish. Economies shift, people change. One of the great stories is this man named Bren Smith, who was a cod fisherman as a teenager when the cod industry collapsed in Newfoundland and they shut down the industry and 30,000 people lost jobs overnight. He went out to Alaska, worked on farms, fish farms in Canada. He's now growing oysters and kelp and scallops off the coast of Connecticut. He says that he's a climate farmer and he's a little embarrassed to be growing seaweed. He's a big wild hunter. And, but, you know, so people change. The older you are, obviously, the harder it is to change. But uh, there are lobstermen now in Maine growing kelp, sometimes as a side crop, sometimes as a full-time switch. People can change. <laughs> <laughs> Nicholas Sullivan, thank you so much. Thank you. Pleasure talking to you. And that's it for this segment. I'm Angela Saini, and I hope you can join me next month for episode five. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions, 
Write to us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org. You can listen to the show on the science website at science.org slash podcast or search for Science Magazine on any podcasting app. This show was edited and produced by Sarah Crespi with production help from Podigy, Kevin McLean, and Megan Cantwell. Transcripts are by Scribby. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. On behalf of Science and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started.